Hi everyone, I'm David Green. Welcome to episode one of series five of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. This episode of the podcast was recorded at the Global Executive Retreat, hosted by Insight 222 and TI People for an amazing group of future thinking leaders at Chewton Glen in the heart of the New Forest in the UK to think, reflect and plan on the topics of next gen HR, people analytics and digital HR. The centerpiece of the retreat was a think tank led by John Boudreau on the reorganization of work and implications for HR. Suffice to say that in order to survive and flourish, the HR function needs to evolve by embracing analytics, providing more business value and delivering exceptional workforce experiences. John joins me on the podcast to explore some of these themes and the concepts from his recent book, Reinventing Jobs. John is the research director for USC's Center for Effective Organizations and Professor of Management and Organization at the Marshall School of Business. His large-scale studies and focused field research address the future of the global human resources profession, HR measurement and analytics, decision-based HR, executive mobility, HR information systems, and organizational staffing and development. John has published more than 50 books and articles, and his research has been featured in Harvard Business Review, The Wall Street Journal, Fortune, and Business Week. In our conversation, John and I discuss the reorganization of work and the far-reaching implications for HR. We talk about examples of companies and leaders who are successfully embracing the future of work. We talk through John's four-step framework for reinventing jobs and optimizing work. And like with all our guests, we look into the crystal ball and ponder what the future role of HR will be in 2025. This episode is a must listen for business leaders seeking more from HR, as well as any HR leaders and professionals who want to add more value to their organization, to their workforce, and to their own careers. Before we get started, a brief word from our sponsor for Series 5 of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Support for this podcast is brought to you by OrgView. OrgView is the SaaS platform for workforce analytics and modeling that puts your organization on the front foot. Because in an era of constant disruption, getting ahead sure beats playing catch up. What OrgView does best is give you control of your workforce, how it's organized, how it operates, and how it can be designed to do better, all based on data. It connects HR and finance data so the business can come together to interrogate the present and plan ahead to ensure the workforce and the work it does delivers the business vision. This is real-time organizational planning and analysis for times of change. And that's why OrgView is used by the world's most progressive companies and consulting firms to continually shape their future organization. To discover more, visit the website at orgview.com. That's orgvue.com. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. John Boudreaux, Professor of Management Organization at the University of Southern California, and one of the foremost voices in our space is the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here as well in, in a special venue today. Please, can you provide listeners with a quick introduction to you and your, and your background? Well, of course. I've been at this about 35 years. It's been my privilege and pleasure to work with uh, some of the smartest and best thinkers and leaders in HR. Uh, as many of you know, I began my career at Cornell University in the U.S. and was there for about 22 years in the School of Industrial Labor Relations, more recently for the last 15 or so at the University of Southern California in the Marshall School of Business and working with my good colleague Ed Lawler and others at the Center for Effective Organizations as a research director. Uh, so that, uh, as, as people know, kind of started my career thinking about evidence and 
the payoff from HR investments, and that has led through a somewhat circuitous path to a little more focus on the future of work and the nature of what work will be like in, uh, going forward. So, John, you've built an enviable reputation for the research that you've done on the bridge between Thank human you. capital, talent, and uh, competitive, sustainable competitive advantage. You work cl- closely with numerous CHROs and HR leaders mm-hmm. during those 35 years that you mentioned. And obviously, there's been a lot of change. Indeed. You know, what do you think makes for a great CHRO in today's digital world? Well, there's a couple of things. Again, a lot of what I'll say, I will credit my colleagues such as Ian Ziskin and Ed Lawler and others. Um, I think what we're seeing is that a great CHRO, probably one of the biggest changes is the great CHROs will be thinking beyond the boundary of their function. Uh, and I think in the past, certainly early in the 80s, 70s and 80s, great CHROs were defined by running the function well, by getting the function to be more recognized, uh, getting the function to be more of a business relevant, uh, a business relevant factor. I think now we're seeing a future in which that boundary is going to become very gray. And HR will look more like uh, a combination of things like marketing, operations, storytelling, anthropology, that sort of thing. So the notion of a boundaryless function that is more open to bringing in other disciplines, my colleague Ian Ziskin uh, has coined the idea of HR, the HR leader as an orchestra conductor, where they don't need to be the expert on everything, but they do need to be able to get the best out of a, a widening set of constituents. And a more outward looking role than perhaps previously where HR maybe has been guilty historically of looking too inwardly at the mm-hmm. function and not enough at the business mm-hmm. and probably the external the external world as well. I think that's right. I think that has actually been evolving. Um, I'm kind of reminded of, again, my colleague Pete Ramstead, uh, who, who wrote a book with me uh, in, the, in the early 2000s. And part of the, that book was called Beyond HR. And the reason for that was to suggest the idea that the discipline might need to work a bit more like finance or marketing, where you start looking outside and then move inward rather yeah. than the other way. I do think there has been a good deal of progress there. I think that's well recognized. Recognized. I think the constituents for HR leaders, um, even regulators and employees, are expect that HR will be looking beyond its function. Um, that said, I've, I'm sure there are or our research would suggest there are a number of organizations where the, the role is defined as managing the function well. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but only mm-hmm. one way to add value. Well, you're here because you're guest speaker or running a think tank for us tomorrow, the Insight 222 Global Executive Retreat. You're running a workshop on the reorganization of work and the implications for HR. I thought it'd actually be quite good to share with some of our listeners because this is a topic that's top of of mind for them as well. Um, Some of the material that we'll be covering during that that day, it's a whole day, so we can only get a snapshot in it here. Um, First, I understand it was HR leaders themselves who you co-curated some of the research with. It'd be good to understand a little bit more about that before we maybe dip into the five forces of change. Great. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. So for the listeners, there is a acronym that I want to share with them. And it's the word create, uh, but with an extra H after the C for HR. Yep. Uh, and so that word, C-H-R-E-A-T-E, will bring them, if they do a search on it, to a web page and a, a ebook that is free uh, for them to download. Uh, The CREATE project then, which I'll refer to now, was indeed a kind of um, upwelling uh, of of, um, willingness and energy from some of the best CHROs that I know. Surprisingly, given that they're the best, what they were saying was that 
the progression, the, the, the progression uh, uh, line of HR trajectory is going to be outrun by the potential challenges and also the potential opportunities. So they really came to me and Ian and others and said, why are we not working on these tectonic exponential shifts? Yeah. Uh, and then and then one of the many, they invented many things. The listeners can go find out about those. Tomorrow we'll talk primarily about one particular team, one particular initiative, which was to say, what are the strategic issues that are being ignored by our strategists? And again, these are some of the best HR people in the world. So they're in the strategy meetings. Yeah. And even they were saying there are some very important changes in the nature of work that never really reach the level of discussion uh, in our in our strategy sessions. And so how can we bring those trends and, uh, and ideas to the fore of our strategy and how can we connect them to implications for the business, implications for the future, et cetera. And the five forces that were identified, if we could just briefly go through those for our listeners now. Yep. That would, that would, I think it'd be great because certainly when we were going through the work, yes, they really they really resonated with me and certainly resonated with a lot of the conversations I'm having with uh, people analytics leaders that are here, but also those that, that aren't here as well. Yes, so so yeah, I'll try and, and create them from memory, though we've covered them a lot. But again, I'll do credit to the group. So one of them is uh, social and organizational change, and that sort of encompasses. Uh, some ideas like the formal hierarchy may be less important, less pivotal than the social network, that um, the, there has been a shift to social media as the communication rather than formal communication, that sort of thing. Um, second one is sort of a globally uh, connected world, um, a global, global market for work, really. Uh, yeah. And so that's sort of closely related. Uh, and then the third one is kind of full interconnection in the world. So although not every region in the world already has bandwidth, et cetera, but it's getting to a point where you basically will be able to connect with anyone anywhere. Uh, and then as we move down, we have uh, the trend of uh, uh, human and machine collaboration and then exponential technology change. So the first three, roughly, uh, the group decided uh, comprise what they called the democratization of work, yep. uh, democracy in every sense, uh, greater voice, greater power to the periphery of the network, less control, but also a great deal more innovation and freedom inside the formal organization, boundaryless markets for work, that kind of thing. And then in the bottom one, exponential technology change, human-machine collaboration, those trends, they, they said, reflect technological empowerment. And, and using those two dimensions, democratization and technological empowerment, we can begin to map the work of an organization or the work of a, a region and begin to say, what work will, will, uh, will, where is work today? And then where will work be in the future on those two dimensions? And you created a very nice, and we will include this in the in, in the podcast so people can see it as well. Yeah. You created a really nice two by two, oh, just to try and help organisations mm -hmm. kind of plot yes. what they needed to do with certain parts of the workforce. Yes, indeed, and, and that's I, I suppose so many of us were consultants in the group that you must create a two, <laughs> a two by, by two. two yeah, it has to be a two uh, by two. But it actually makes, I think, in this case, it's pretty legitimate and makes a lot of sense. So this idea of um, of mapping, I, and I find it very useful to map the work. And what that means is that the lower left quadrant, so to speak, is not a bad place. Mm. It just means that this is work that will probably be traditional in terms of democratization, meaning that it'll be employment 
be relatively internal or close substitutes, and that it can be managed with today's technology, which actually is pretty formidable. There may be, in some organizations, 80% of the work may fall in that box. Yeah. That's good to know because there's no reason to push hard on that sort of work if it isn't in need of new technologies or something else. As we move upward, we begin to get out of the realm of employment, and we begin to say, well, work could come from anywhere to anywhere, and again, with, even with today's technology, there will be work in the organization where you say, yes, this is our issue. It's that we are bounded by employment, but if we could just be more flexible about the nature of how we engage humans, that would solve many of our problems. It might mm. be skills, it might be filling positions, etc. And then, of course, moving to the right, we move toward greater technology. And your listeners will, of course, be probably more expert than me, but it's the idea of going from today's technology to maybe more of a virtual, more of a constant experience, more algorithmically driven nudges, algorithmically driven analysis, etc. Um, and again, n none of the four quadrants would be bad. It's actually a matter of mapping the work, and then the implications are very different depending on where that work exists. So what it really helps, you know, if you're an HR leader, it helps you prioritize where you're going to focus your efforts. Because as you said, if in some organizations that, that bottom left-hand box maybe is eight, where 80% of the population mm -hmm. is. Yes. Yes, of course, you've got to create a great workforce experience and everything else, but there's a less amount of work doing. You can focus on the other the other 20%. I think that's right, indeed. Uh, that's, so one of the things is let's, let's focus change efforts where they're most needed, where the energy already exists. I think when, when I work with organizations, what we find when we map the work is that um, some of the work in those outer quadrants where change is needed, the indicators are already there, and there's great energy. Leaders are essentially saying, I'm at a loss. Mm. I can't fill these positions. Maybe they've been open you know, 15, 20, 30 weeks. Our skill changes are happening so fast that I can't seem to get it done with reskilling or training. Um, we have work that is becoming disaggregated or deconstructed, as we say, and I, I can't. The pieces are starting to pull apart. And, and so those things often already exist, and why not go there? Yeah. where leaders are already searching for new solutions rather than come to a leader where the current system is working pretty well and say, ah, oh, we're here to bring you the future. And really, they can't see the need yet. And if we explore some of the implications for HR, it almost <coughs> helps put HR on the front foot within the organization, perhaps. I think so. I think it gives, uh, again, with all due respect and, and all uh, compliments to the people who developed it, it's not the only language mm. that one might use no. to frame these issues. And certainly there are lots of great models out there. However, something like this or something that the organization may have developed, I think it helps to give the organization leaders the freedom to place work in some sort of a framework like this at the, at the very basic level to say, let's admit that there are places where we may not need as much change and let's find the places where change exists. So I think it, it can put HR on the front foot in part because it clears up, it gives a language to better articulate HR's role. And it doesn't put HR in the position of trying to do all or nothing. You know, we must move our entire system and our entire workforce into the future. That's a very difficult position to take. To be able to say, well, we'll step back, we'll pick the low-hanging fruit, we'll find the high-priority areas, we'll find evangelists that are already have energy for something new, and to make the change process happen more incrementally. So I think you call this effort for leading the work. 
And yes. I think it'd be great if you can provide a couple of examples to kind of bring some of this thinking to life. Great. So yes, the, the book title with my colleague Robin J. Suthasan was Lead the Work. And the reason for that was uh, as we were writing the book, we realized that leadership is often defined and measured uh, very much in terms of something called an employee. Yeah, And we know what that is. They're inside the box. We call the organization. They have an employment contract and we measure their engagement and we measure their satisfaction and we measure whether leaders are well perceived. Yeah. And as we wrote the book, Lead the Work, we began to encounter examples of, of work being created with a different arrangement that wasn't employment. It might be projects. It might be contracts. It might be freelancers. And we realized that in many cases, the leader is actually leading a blended workforce that might include some contractors, some freelance project workers, maybe even volunteers. And so our question for the book was, are you leading only the employees or are you leading the full array of the work, yeah. which may be done by others? And of course, our premise was that most measurement systems, most analytic systems fall pretty far short of giving a leader a full picture of their full workforce. In fact, it's quite often quite hidden. Yeah. So that was the theme of Lead the Work. Uh, and it was a pleasure writing it because we began to uncover all of these examples that were really quite thought-provoking. Um, and we, we sort of developed a framework about how far you dial things like how much you're breaking down your boundary, um, how much you're changing your reward systems, um, and how much you are, uh, we call it deconstructing or disaggregating the work, maybe down to a tiny project, for example. Yeah. So those three dimensions became the basis for describing these examples and, and offering leaders maybe a language to talk about this. So one example uh, is, uh, the, is, is, a, is one where the boundary of the organization is just barely pierced, um, but where the, uh, the work itself is very disaggregated and we, we think there's a change in the reward. So, so basically what happened is Siemens invents a hearing aid for children. Now Siemens is a great company, engineering based. Most people know them for their products and the hearing aid was magnificent. Yeah. Uh, and so as they go to market it, they might go to their own marketing people. Well, those people work with engineers. They work directly with technical people, and they're going to think to overcharacterize. Marketing is showing people the engineering specifications, yeah. and they'll see the decibel level. Well, this hearing aid needs to be attractive to parents and children who need to ask their physician, tell me more about this. Yeah. Uh, so you don't really solve the problem by handing the parents or the children a spec sheet. So, so Siemens came up with a really interesting innovation that involved sending one of their representatives to Disney because that's where the best storytellers are. So we take this job of marketing a hearing aid, we disaggregate it and realize there's a storytelling component. And we realize that the best talent in the world to tell a story happens not to be at Siemens. That's not a bad thing. It's just mm. the nature of the organization. Yeah, it's, it's good that they're able to recognize that. Yes. Yeah. And all the, if the best storytelling talent is always going to go to Disney, and of course it would, mm. can we find a way to tap that talent? So they pierced their organization boundary with a very tiny, well-protected conduit in the form of this individual who was an intellectual property lawyer. Mm. He would go to Burbank. He would show the secrets of what Siemens was developing, a new MRI, a new hearing aid, etc. And Disney would bring him their people and Disney would show him the secrets of what alliances they were forming, what storylines they had. And the result in this case was uh, a, a set of marketing tools, but one of them, for example, is a comic book. 
And the storyline is about a rabbit, large ears, that doesn't hear well. Yeah. And all the Disney characters help that rabbit hear better with the use of this hearing aid. And of course, Very you and clever. I hear this and we go, oh, I'm sure I would have thought of that, right? But of course, we wouldn't mm. because we're not the world's best storytellers. And so the brilliance of Siemens was they didn't, they didn't bring the whole marketing process to Disney. They brought the part where Disney would be great. They disaggregated the work. They pierced their organization boundary in a way they were satisfied with. Lots of IP protection. Only one organization, which they already knew well. Disney and Siemens had lots of partnerships already. Uh, and I don't know about the rewards because... Um, uh, uh, Darren Sparks, the gentleman who goes to Disney, told me it's a proprietary secret how they organize the rewards for Disney people. Yeah. But I, I, I'm of the opinion that you might even get volunteers from Disney because as much as Disney offers storytelling experience, it's rare that Disney can offer you the chance to help children hear better. Mm. And so I expect that if you put this out as a project, you'd get a pretty strong upwelling of volunteer energy at Disney because these are people that care about children and parents and their experience. So as you can see, that's an, that's an interesting, thought-provoking example. I think the implications for HR, CHROs, HR analytics is would your dashboard, would your planning dashboard offer that alternative? When you're faced with this dilemma of how do we market this thing and our marketers aren't good enough, do we tend to say, well, let's go hire more. Let's create more jobs called marketer and let's try to hire people who want to work for Disney, which won't work. Or would, could you imagine a dashboard that might say, ah, this is an exact situation where we need to borrow talent from an alliance partner and yeah. we'll help you disaggregate the work and we'll help you form, we'll help you pierce our boundary, says HR. Uh, and so, so whether it's it's borrowing talent from a partner, that's that example. Reaching out to a freelance platform on a project basis, similar kinds of issues. Um, uh, um, uh, enlisting volunteers because of a sense of purpose, etc. These are all options in this option set. And for me, the, the, these pose the question of when and how will the HR profession present leaders with a dashboard that would allow them to see and consider options like this. And I think it's definitely something that's gonna be needed, isn't it? For a, because the example you've given, but I think companies are gonna to have to collaborate a little bit more with each other. Yes. Um, because as you said, as you deconstruct the work, you, you identify whether you're just not the best at something. So. I think that's right, and, that's a, they, and you make a very good point. I think the courage to realize that any given organization can only be a destination of choice for employment for a certain, it's, it may be a very broad group. IBM is a massive organization. It has lots of talent inside it, similar with Siemens. But the fact is that there will be limits. Mm. And I, that's why I love this example. Because if you say, where are the best storytellers in the world going to go? There is just no question that mm. they are going to go to storytelling organizations, whether it's Disney or Pixar or, or some production studio. They exist in the world. But the chance that your engineering organization even if you set up a, you know, a loft in New York with beanbag chairs, et cetera, you know, the chance that you'll really attract the very best, with all due respect to those organizations, is probably pretty low. Yeah. So, it, so you, you, when you deconstruct, when you offer the option to look beyond our boundary, you, I think you then you find solutions that were there, but that are invisible if you're limited to jobs, employment, hiring, yeah. et cetera.
and as as you said previously, it's a change in HR's thinking from focusing yes. on employees in the organisation. How many jobs we've got open? How many, many people heads, left? Head how many heads? Jobs, yeah. So actually, yeah. a far more holistic yeah. thinking. Yes, whole people become, I think, an array of capabilities. It, uh, today, it's popular to talk about skills and a skill-based economy. I think that's close, but there's more to capability than skills. So I, for me, I prefer the notion of this person that we used to just plug into a job to overcharacterize, and what we know about them is their capability to do that job and maybe some other things. But we don't know about lots of their capabilities. Mm. Um, in, I was working with Disney, for example, and they created an internal project-based platform. And why? Well, they said it's because we want to tap into the whole person. A good example that they shared with me was we have lots of people in various functions, and we sometimes have the opportunity to do a voiceover for a character or for some sort of promotion or trailer for a film or a play. Mm. Our people, of course, even all over characterize, even the accountants at Disney, join Disney because they're excited about the mission. Well, I believe it was something like an accountant turns out to have a great voice. Because we posted a project that was a voiceover, this accountant can say, oh, I'll raise my hand. I'd like to be considered for that. Now, if you multiply that by thousands, you have an engagement level now for mm. people that might not normally be involved in something like voiceovers or something like that. It's not the whole production. You know, we're not giving him a job of voiceover. We're just saying take time off from your accounting job and come over here and offer a new talent, which we didn't even know you had until we had this project-based approach. That's a very different approach to HR to say, let's look at the whole person and all of their capabilities. Yeah. Let's have a system that allows us to see them and tap into them on a disaggregated way. And then, of course, on the other side, you need to disaggregate the work. I'll call it tasks or projects because the only way to match an accountant, so to speak, with a voiceover is to get beyond this is a whole person we need to find a job for and instead say there's a voiceover project. So that's a, And I would say that took no organization boundary uh, uh, piercing. Yeah. You can do that with the employees inside the organization. Yeah, it's just using the technology to, to your advantage to actually yes. to do it and having the, the, the mindset behind it. Yes, yeah. So that's very different skills for HR. But as I said, we have Disney. There's a similar initiative that I know of by folks at uh, P&G, Procter & Gamble. Uh, again, and, and so if you think about it, one of the things that HR does, for example, at P&G, is they vetted, they, they approved certain platforms of freelancers. So if you're a leader now and you bring work to them, they can safely say, well, let's say 30% of your work is suitable for a freelancer who we might contract with through a platform. Mm. Now, if you give that to a leader, they don't know the platforms, they, they'll run into IP issues, they'll run into legal issues, et cetera. So the brilliance of HR was let's vet through all the choices and come up with two or three top choices of a freelance platform, of partners where we borrow talent, et cetera, so that when we disaggregate your work and come back to you with a solution, we're prepared to implement that solution. And you're free to choose those options because we've already vetted them. Let's move from lead the work and looking at human workers both within and external to the organization to another growing type of worker that we're getting, mm -hmm. automation. And, and that blend between human and, auto, and automation as well. Yes. Um, obviously, you recently published this book, Reinventing Jobs, again with Thank Robin. You. 
Um, and for those that haven't read the book yet, you really should. It's a, it's a very good read and it's an easy read as well, which is always, is always nice. And for me, it provides almost a much needed and long awaited update to how we think about strategic workforce planning. I Mm. think it certainly leads the way into that. Um, can you work for the, walk through the four-step framework, which is, is in the first part of the books? It's, it's pretty fascinating, and I think it, it follows on quite nicely from some of the stuff we've just talked about. Well, so. thank you. That's very kind of you. And again, I'll do credit to my colleague, Robin J. Suthasen. I'm sure it's an easy read primarily because of his, uh, his intellect and his perspective as someone who's working in the field. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, so the idea would be that we, we have systems that think about human workers and we could say, well, let's expand that beyond just employing a human in a job. Let's think about human workers engaged in many different ways. That's lead the work. Yep. As Robin and I were talking about lead the work and what our next uh, book might be, we realized uh, that, that automation had a great deal of similarity, that it, it also was a boundary-breaking idea, that it also required disaggregating the work yep. to see the patterns. So we began to, to play with that idea, and the result was this book. Um, so, so you could think of it as, it, as now expanding the dashboard. Yep. So we have a dashboard that was human, peop- human workers in a job, now we expand it to say deconstruct the work into tasks, and now we can think about tasks distributed to other humans that might engage with us in different ways. Well, it's not much of a click. It's a, it's no. a big deal, but, but yeah. it's the, it, conceptually, you can say, well, wait a minute. I, could, I love the way you phrased it. I could think of automation as a part of my workforce, which is, which is kind of the point of the book, is that automation can be thought of in a way as part of your talent pool. I'll be... Um, uh, in the Center for Effective Organizations, one of our affiliates is named Sharna Wiblin, uh, Australian. Sharna has done a great deal of research on the, uh, call it the epistemology or language of how we think about talent. And she raised an interesting question, many of them, but one of them is, would you think of automation as part of your talent pool? Well, as we'll discuss tomorrow in the program, there are some very interesting examples where human beings really regard the automation they work with as a collaborator. Mm. And they describe it as a collaborator, and they think of it as part of the team. This this full language expert that happens to be sitting in a computer, like Alexa or Siri or something like that, that can answer my questions when I say, has anyone ever done this before? That can suggest options based on what it sees. All right, so now, how do we create a framework to understand that? So the, the, it's, it's in a way kind of four steps to um, uh, understanding and, uh, and, and coming up with solutions for automation. So the first step is, again, this, and this is a theme I think that is going to be a big thing in HR, is to disaggregate the work. You, you simply cannot see the patterns if you think of automation replacing people yeah. in jobs. It, what we discovered was, and, and this is a fairly common uh, understanding now, but at the time we wrote the book, we were just beginning. There was a great deal, of course, of, of attempts to analyze how many jobs will go away. And the, the, the researchers studying that realized that they couldn't answer the question at the job level. So they broke the jobs down into tasks. Now they could say 70% of the tasks that are part of this job are, let's say, easily automated. But 30% are not. So the real issue is that we don't end up with jobs going away. We end up with parts of jobs going away. And then you have a need for humans, but you only need them for whatever it might be, 30, 70% of the work they did before. So disaggregation as 
courageous as it is, imagine now that you and HR are going to have to go to leaders and say, well, I know that your accounting was about how many jobs we were, how many humans we were going to give back. Yeah. And we're not going to give back any of them. Particularly as they, some new tasks will be identified because of the technology, yes. which might add to the 30% yes. in the example you That's gave. right. Yeah. So it can range. Now we say, well, the, the worst case is we need humans, but the humans only have 30% of the work to do that they did before. And it, it's not quite an equation where we just, well, then let's get rid of 70% of the people because we may need 100% of the people each doing 30%. Yeah. Now that's it. So what do we pay them? You know, so, I mean, it just changes development, pay, everything. And of course, you're right. It could be that we have 30% old work, but we have a new 60% of yep. new work. And the interesting thing is, it is not unusual for that new 60% to be so much more valuable because of automation yep. that you actually could do better economically by just paying the same people more to do 90% of the work they did before because it's so much more valuable. So we talk about the, generally the idea that once you deconstruct and see these tasks, you may indeed replace humans at the task level. You may augment them, meaning that they're pretty much doing the same thing, but we've made it more efficient, faster, etc. But sometimes you actually enhance or reinvent them. Mm. And humans are doing something that no human being could possibly do without automation. And that's when you get these really interesting win-wins where you have terrific economic value because of automation. You can afford to pay the humans more because they're now have been reinvented to be doing something else. So deconstruct the work. Yeah. Then the second one is back to uh, some early writing that I, that I did with Pete Ramstead about the nature of the payoff. Mm. So there are curves and everything, but basically think, let's think about four different kinds of things. One payoff is the automation will reduce mistakes. So the, the value is getting rid of accidents, mistakes, etc. That's one way of automating. Another way of automating is the differences in the way people perform don't produce a lot of difference in value. So you could think about there's many different performance levels. They all produce the same value. So we may uh, make them more uniform. Another one is this idea of augmenting. There is an increase in performance for each in, value. As performance increases, value goes up. Maybe it's like a line. And we're going to move people along that line. And then at the very right, let's call it at the highest performance levels, you have these situations where the highest people are the creative ones. Exponential value. And, and sometimes automation can take all of us ordinary humans and it can make us into the most extraordinary version of workers. So take surgery. Mm. The best surgeons in the world have certain things that they do. Some of them are frankly um, uh, uh, not avoiding, uh, avoiding mistakes. The best surgeon in the world will think of ideas or they've read the literature so that they know what to do in a certain situation. With automation, AI can inform a surgeon about the best procedure. Now we've taken all those surgeons that were frankly somewhat poorer performers because they'd never think of that. And we have made them all superhuman. So this, and this happens in, in it, like, like Good benefit oil, yeah. <laughs> so you, so this, so that for HR, this idea of, well, what is the payoff we're trying for? Is it, is it reducing mistakes? Is it augmenting the human performance? Or is it some sort of exponential reinvention of the work 
uh, where we make everyone a superhuman with this tool. Uh, that's, you know, those are discussions that we need to have. Leaders need to be facile with that idea. Once you've done those two steps, then you can turn to more of the, the automation. So the next step would be to begin to task by task, think about what sort of automation, robotic processes, artificial intelligence, deep learning, etc. So our feeling is that if you can get the tasks well isolated, then these questions of, well, should it be robotic, should it be a, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning, etc., those are difficult questions at the job level, Pr probably impossible. Yeah. At the task level, they become a bit more clearer. They're still tricky, but it also reflects the future of HR. That step must happen in conjunction with people who know technology well. What often happens is you have operations or uh, tech, uh, you know, IT over here. They're very good at understanding the different technologies. They're very good at speculating about how they might affect the work. You've got HR, which knows the work deeply, but isn't very facile or very involved with the technologies. And when they're separated, you get, if it's driven by technology, you'll get lots of rather naive solutions about the work, but very deep on the technology side. Mm. If it's HR, you get very deep understanding of the work and the workers, but maybe some naivete about technology. So again, we, we come back to that boundaryless HR function, where if you look around HR, it may look like a technology design organization in many parts of it. You might really not see a difference there. And then the final thing is, so you've done all this analysis at the task level, then you reinvent the job, which is the title of the book. And that's when you come back, you put it back together optimally, and you have the courage to say, if it turns out that we need only 50% of the work being done by people, we're prepared as an HR organization to help our leaders understand that and work with it, for example. Perfect. A couple of things that come from that. Firstly, I think I'm an optimist, so I look at the future of work as an opportunity for, mm -hmm. for, for, for organizations and particularly for HR. Yes. Um, you've probably seen some of the work that Jeffrey Pfeffer published mm -hmm. around how our workplaces are literally killing us because people are overworked. Indeed. Indeed. I think Josh has talked about, uh, Josh Burson has talked about the, the overwhelmed employee. Mm -hmm. This potentially is an opportunity. We talked about, okay, let's take the example you gave, 30% is left. We maybe add other stuff to make it 90%. Now, hopefully that means people actually have to work less hours. Mm -hmm. And maybe they're doing stuff that it's, they get more of a, they enjoy more. Yes. And maybe we can afford to pay them more as well. So hopefully the hope is that we actually make work better. Yes. I may, might be being a bit naive here, but we won't work better for employees through using technology mm -hmm. rather than just wholesale replacement. I think that I love the vision that you have. And, and, um, and I think it's quite possible um, when we begin a conversation like this, the the uh, uh, the phrase that's going through my mind is a kind of famous observation that the the future is coming, but it will be unevenly distributed. And so I really love that quote because it it brings to mind the idea that there will be variations and that it's fine. So I think you're absolutely right that some work is going to evolve, and it, and we're going to have the happy circumstance where the part that's automated was actually uh, unhealthy. Yeah. So there's plenty of Accidents to be prevented, dirty, dangerous work to be prevented, um, and it's it was also uh, mundane, uh, so it was kind of mind killing anyway. We're going to take that away, and we'll have the happy situation that we have replacing it work that is more fulfilling, automation enabled, etc. We have examples in the book that definitely happens. However, 
that is not, as much as I love your optimism, <laughs> that is not likely, that happy circumstance will not be 100%. Boston. I don't know what the percentage is going to be. No, there will that. be situations where the answer is that we need to reduce the workforce. Mm. And, and uh, HR, as a profession, will need to be prepared to help with that. But I think as a profession, HR needs to be more. Our leaders need to understand that they are making choices that have these effects. It's not, a, it's not completely at the discretion of leaders, but in many situations, leaders' choices will be the difference between wholesale layoffs or work that is even more mind-numbing versus work where we preserve the workforce and where people are even more fulfilled. At the moment, I don't think that leaders realize that these choices they think are about technology are actually having implications that are about the future of work and that their philosophy about work is being reflected in the choices that they make. One of my favorite questions, I, th I, th I, I think it's a bit early in the learning curve, but one of my favorite questions is to ask, will you slow automation to allow your human workers to catch up? And at the moment, Almost every leader I talk to looks at me as if I'm crazy. <laughs> you know, we can't possibly slow automation, competition, etc. Well, that sounds a little bit like so many things where we feel we must unfortunately uh, exploit or, or, or treat the workforce badly because it's competitive pressures, yeah. you know, and we hope that we can do it humanely, but it's choices that, the, you know, layoffs or something like that where the workers would rather have another choice. Uh, and I think we may see a future where organizations may say we can compete better by being the place where we say, if you join us, we will give you the opportunity to keep up. Yeah. And we're going to be that careful about how we communicate, about the opportunities we give you. That, 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 uh, that choice is something that I think the HR profession has the opportunity to articulate for leaders. So in, in a simple case, leaders have choices. I don't think they're aware of them. One of the real opportunities for HR today, I'm hoping they can, they can take advantage of it, is to be the profession that leaders learn to go to, to understand the full array of the implications. And one of the implications, of course, which I know more and more HR leaders are getting involved in, is some of these new tasks that will be created as a result of automation, automation, which humans will do, there's a gap in skills because these yes. new tasks, there's a shortage of people with those skills, Yes, which probably leads back to what we were talking about before about actually being more open to collaborating with, with other organizations, looking outside the organizations for people who have those skills to, yes. to actually fulfill that work. Yes, I think that's very well put. This is where... We, this is where um, I see it, and I think you're articulating it as a kind of continuum. Multiple ways to engage humans, multiple ways to combine humans with automation. We imagine all of that existing in a dashboard. We, might, we wouldn't call it any longer an employment planning dashboard. Mm. It would be something like work planning or something like that. And that dashboard has the data to begin to get algorithmic, algorithmically smarter, AI, etc., about what appear to be the optimizations that work, um, and also good at informing leaders and alerting them to these choices. So I think that's that's exactly right. And and reskilling, I love the attention to reskilling. That said, I think that the reskilling debate at the moment is fairly embryonic, and that skills are only a part of 
the capability. So I, I, I like the disaggregation. Skills instead of jobs, I really love that. Skills instead of a whole person who fits or doesn't fit a job. Uh, that said, I think there's more to capability than skills, and we'll probably end up with a different language mm. about capability than just the skills. I, I admire. I think I admire the attention to it. I think it's a great starting point. It's a good way to focus leaders' attention. That said, if we stay with skills, I think we're going to begin hitting walls. Okay. Uh, and 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 on the same way, I don't know that we've thought enough about the disaggregation of the of the work, which I think we remain. Uh, in a position where we'll, I think we'll eventually be able to develop a language of work that is a more that is at a more disaggregated level, and I don't know yet that the world has begun to develop that language. So, as you said, John, I mean, a lot of this thinking is still quite embryonic in most organisations, mm -hmm. but there are some examples in the book mm -hmm. um, of organisations that are doing this well and are applying this thinking around reinventing jobs. Yes. Would you like to share one of those examples with, with our listeners? Sure. I, th I think, uh, and I'm sh let me say as a caveat, I, know, you know, I'm, I work with a limited number of organizations. I'm sure there are many out there yeah. that are even further along, and, and that's part of the reason for working with folks like you, because I get the privilege of working with them and hearing from them. Uh, so I think in the lead-to-work world, I've mentioned a couple of organizations. I think this idea of uh, creating a project-based platform is something that is the is the impetus for thinking better about engaging humans more flexibly. Organizations like uh, IBM has a very robust uh, internal platform, particularly in their professional services area. Yeah. I mentioned P&G, which is is starting this idea of a they call it a, a shopping mall of different uh, options. Mentioned Disney, etc. Accenture, others. Um, there are also uh, companies that come in from the outside, such as uh, Manpower uh, or Upwork, that, uh, that have the ability to help build these kinds of engines for individuals. They, they've already learned to do them outside, and they can help build them inside. So that's humans being engaged in different ways, lots of tools, lots of initiatives there. In terms of automation, um, I think it's more um, industries than maybe specific organizations. So as we looked in the book, um, Robin is very involved, for example, in financial services. So we're, I think it's, it's just uh, unavoidable, really, in financial services that we have now you know, automated financial advisors. One of the favorite examples I like is, that, uh, is the example of bank tellers. The reason I like it is that a very good economist, James Beeson, did, did the analysis, and we have more bank tellers today than when the ATM was invented in the 70s. It's one of my favorite slides. Now, how can that be? Mm. How can it be that after decades of ATMs, we have more tellers? Well, it's a great economic story that you still need humans in a bank branch, but with automation, you need fewer per branch. That means that branches become less expensive. Something that's less expensive gets used more. Yeah. And so the proportional increase in the number of branches was greater than the proportional decrease per branch in people. So automation actually added more jobs than it would have before. Uh, you, I mentioned the example of superhumans. There are a number of examples in the medical industry where with automation we create um, doctors, physicians, nurses that are automatically as informed as someone working at the best hospitals in the world, because the automation can bring that knowledge uh, virtually to them. Uh, surgeons, automation can often do a better job than any human at, for example, opening and closing in a surgery. Yeah. Once you allow automation to do that, you remove the chance that someone will be hurt or, or injured with the opening and closing 
because that that's now uniform. Um, there are example. One of Robin's favorite examples comes from the the uh, oil extraction industry, where you you can actually automate most of the functions of an oil rig, particularly things like maintenance, because the Internet of Things allows you to put sensors everywhere and run drones around to look at things, that sort of thing, and that actually changes the job of oil rig maintenance from a human standing on the oil rig with a team doing yeah. inspections, etc. So suppose you have a really unbelievably smart uh, uh, maintenance person. Well, they can only do one rig in the mm. old world. In the new world, we have sensors on all of those rigs. We put those people in a control center, like an air traffic control center, and we can move the best repair person we have to the rig that needs that best thinking instantly. So they're now covering 20, 30 rigs. That's a great example. That new job can be paid a great deal more yeah. than someone on one oil rig. So as you so as you can see, this I, my dream is that the HR profession becomes known as the place leaders go to articulate those kinds of options. And probably for that oil rig, well, former oil rig worker, a better work-life balance as well. Yes, yes. So, so they can live. The control center can be in better places to live. It's less dirty. It's less dangerous. So all of those things on the left side of the performance curve, less yeah. mistakes, less accidents, etc. Some things in the middle of the performance curve, the maintenance they do is going to be better uh, because our sensors will get them to the spot. But then there is that exponential. I think of it as a really upward rising curve on the right-hand side of the performance graph where we say, well, if everyone was this good, and if each of our rigs could have the best uh, the, the best uh, uh, maintenance person imagine the economic value, but of mm. course in the old world you go, well, that's not possible. You know, everyone we have a distribution of talent, etc. Now maybe you can yeah. have a subset of people, and as you say, uh, I don't remember the exact numbers Robin calculated, but it's a it's a it's factors greater value, yeah, which yeah. leaves you a great deal of room for factors greater work life balance pay, et cetera, and still an economic advantage. Yeah. Well, John, it's been great. We're drawing towards the close, unfortunately, now. Um, but this is a question we ask all our guests on the show, and I think it will follow on quite nicely from the conversation we've had so far. And it's what will the future role of HR be in 2025? And I know you look beyond that, so you can always go beyond 2025 if yeah. you want. Thank you. So HR itself. You know, <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> I wish I could be as precise as, you know, this is how it'll look in 2025 and this is how it'll look in 2030. And so I'm afraid that's well beyond me. That's for well, we'll uh, people, dust off the, that's people the like you ball. that are much smarter. Well, I don't but, know about that. <laughs> but I think the trends that we see, and again, I would thank my colleagues in the Create Group and Ian and, and of course, my co-authors and others. Um, as we said, I think we, I think it's it's unavoidable now that the disciplines that are brought to bear in questions like this go well beyond the traditional disciplines of HR. As important as those disciplines are, mm. there is a need to open the boundary so that an HR profession has within it already we're seeing data analysts, storytellers, etc. I think we're going to see more designers of technology, uh, more uh, um, professions that are good at disaggregation and reaggregation, such as architecture, engineering, where very often the problems they're already really good at have to do with disaggregation and then reinvention, if you think about that. So lots of engineers running around, architects running around. So one is the future of HR is this idea of an orchestra conductor, someone who's well connected to other disciplines and who can bring those disciplines in. 
One of the really fundamental things, I think, is a profession that is prepared to disaggregate the work and disaggregate the individual and to develop a language at that disaggregated level that is not chaos, mm. but that is something systematic that we can use to reinvent the work. That's a, I, I don't know that the profession, it's not a criticism, but I think there's a, a great deal of potential in realizing that, that not all, but much of the work will benefit from disaggregation and from the courage to be able to put the pieces together in a different way. We don't really have systems that plan that way. We don't really have systems that think that way. Yep. So that's going to be, I think, a significant one. Um, and then I think this idea, these, um, these ideas we've talked about, engaging humans differently, combining automation with humans, um, they have organizational implications. So when automation takes over certain tasks, the power structure changes. Uh, my colleague Rob Cross and I, Rob is much better known than me and, and rightly so for his work on social networks. I love that work. Those social networks are generally conceived of as human networks, very often conceived as employee networks. And Rob and I have been thinking together about the notion of what happens when first you open up the network to be people that aren't employees. So how vital is this contractor to the social structure yeah. of the work. And then, what if we put artificial intelligence as a social node? So when you have artificial intelligence providing information, offering suggestions, etc., shouldn't that be a part of your social network? Yeah. Because when you drop it into a social network, doesn't it change the way everyone interacts? You can imagine that if AI starts to make surgical decisions, how does that change the power of a surgeon in terms of hospital values, hospital culture, based, compared to the old times when the surgeon was really the center of knowledge, of power, of influence, etc. Do we need the AI inventor with the surgeon when the board of a hospital talks about decisions about patient health? So, you can, so, that, so another significant element here for HR is to realize that once you start to reinvent the work, the echoes, the ripples, are going to mean vastly different organization structures, vastly different elements of organization design, such as power, accountability, et cetera. It's fascinating. And I love the social network stuff. And actually, I was at a conference a few weeks ago in Philadelphia where Rob yep. Cross yep. delivered Connected the comments. keynote. Yeah. yeah, really, really good stuff. Yeah, really good he's stuff. wonderful. So, And I think you're right. I think these are becoming more and more important. And I think now the technology is there with some of the passive um, network analysis mm -hmm. to really start to understand how this you know, how organizations really work. Yes, I would so, agree. So. Yeah. John, it's been great. Last question. How can people stay in touch with you? And we'll put all your uh, various social media stuff on the, on the yep. publicity. But. Well, I think it's, uh, there's lots, there's lots of, of connection points. Uh, one of the main ones is the website that I use, uh, in a sense, for my professional speaking, et cetera. So that's dr, as in doctor, johnboudreau.com, all one word. Um, and then another one is the Center for Effective Organizations, uh, where I work with a, a great number of terrific colleagues. That's kind of the entry point to my university role. Uh, and either one of those will get you pretty quickly to LinkedIn, Twitter, et cetera. Et cetera. John, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Well, thank you. Thank pleasure. You. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. You can subscribe via your podcast app of choice. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on your podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. 
We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make this podcast. If you haven't already, do check out myhrfuture.com for the latest learning and news on the future of HR. And you can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter there too. That's all for this episode, but please make sure you tune in next week when we'll be speaking to Dawn Klinghoffer, Global Head of People Analytics at Microsoft, on how they use people data to drive workforce experience and culture. So don't miss that one, and I'll see you next time.